John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. Burkett notes, this feast was not of divine but human institution. It was appointed by Judas Maccabeus and continued eight days as an anniversary commemoration of the repairing of the temple. Now our Savior was so far from reproving the Jews for observing this feast, which was of human institution, that he graced the solemnity with his own presence. Observe hence that our Savior held communication with the Jewish church and did, without scruple, conform himself to the observation of their rites and customs, although they were not originally of divine institution. Learn, too, that such a Christian as doth peaceably comply with the practice of the church in whose communion he lives, in the observation of those different rites and customs which are used by her, acts most agreeably to our Savior's practice and example. Who can, with any show of reason, censure Christians for observing the Feast of the Nativity who see Christ himself observing the Feast of Dedication? Certainly no person of sober principles ever questioned, but that ecclesiastical rulers and civil magistrates have a power to appoint public days of thanksgiving yearly for the commemoration of mercies, which ought never to be forgotten. From our Savior's presence at this feast, Brodius well notes that festival days in memorial of public blessings may piously be instituted by persons in authority without a divine command. Verses 23 through 26. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told ye, and ye believe not. The works that I do are in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Burkett notes, In these verses we have recorded a new and fresh debate betwixt our Savior and the Jews, and therein we have observable, 1. The time of this debate. Verse 22. It was at the Feast of the Dedication in the winter. Our Savior taking that opportunity to publish his doctrine when a concourse of people were gathered together at the solemnity. Observe, too, the place of this debate in Solomon's porch. Although the temple and porch built by Solomon were destroyed by the Babylonians, yet when the temple was rebuilt, there was a porch like it, which retained the ancient name. Observe, three, the debate itself. If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. Not that they affected the knowledge of the truth, but only designed to ensnare him. For if he had affirmed himself to be the Messiah, he had brought himself in danger of the Roman governor, because the Jews expected the Messiah to be a temporal prince that should deliver them from the Roman power. Now, if Christ had declared himself such a Messiah as the Jews expected, it might have cost him his life. Therefore, his hour being not yet come, he answers with his usual prudence and wariness to their ensnaring question. Learn hence that Christ's enemies are full of subtle policies and can turn themselves into all shapes that, if possible, they may entrap and snare him. And accordingly, they pretend here great eagerness of desire to be satisfied whether he was indeed the true and promised Messiah, when in truth they had another design. Observe for the wisdom and caution of our Savior's answer. He refers them to his miracles. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Our Savior's miraculous works were sufficient for the Jews to have grounded and bottomed their faith upon and to have confirmed them in the belief that he was the promised and expected Messiah, 
had not prejudice, obstinacy, and malice blinded their eyes that they could neither see nor consider. Observe lastly how Christ points out to these Jews the true cause of their infidelity, which was not the obscurity of his doctrine, but their not being his sheep, that is, not as yet converted, they not having the properties of his sheep, which he sets down in the following verses. Learn hence that men's final unbelief under the means of faith is a clear evidence of their being in a lost and perishing condition. Infidelity is the sin that doth consign a man over to damnation, and to such as sit under the gospel that not only procure damnation, but no damnation like it. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Burkett notes, Here observe one, that all sincere and faithful Christians are Christ's sheep, and he is their great and good shepherd. This relation implies tender affection, powerful protection, and plentiful provision. The tenderness of Christ's affection towards his sheep appears by pitying their infirmities, by having a fellow feeling with them in their sufferings, by suiting their temptations to the degree of their graces. His care in providing for them appears in affording to them the Holy Scriptures, the ministry of the Word, the administration of the sacraments, and the operations of His Holy Spirit, to make all efficacious and effectual to them. His protection of them discovers itself by preparing them for trials, by supporting them unto them, and by delivering them out of them, and by sanctifying all to them, causing them to work together in subserviency to his own glory and his people's good. Observe, too, that Christ's sheep hear Christ's voice and answer the call of their great shepherd. They hear the voice of Christ speaking to them in the scriptures, in the ministry of the word, in their own consciences, in providences. And they hear Christ's voice speaking to them in and by his Holy Spirit. And as they hear Christ's voice, so do they answer his call. Now the right answer to the call of Christ in the gospel is a present answer, a willing answer, and an abiding answer. Observe three, that all Christ's sheep do follow him, their shepherd. They follow him, one, in his doctrine, and two, in his example, in his contempt of the world, in his freedom and reproving sin, in the holiness and heavenly-mindedness of his conversation, in his meekness and patience, in charity and universal goodness, and as he was a mighty pattern of prayer. Observe four, that Christ the great and good shepherd knows all his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. He knows them so as to distinguish them, so as to observe and take notice of them, so as to own and approve them, so as to take care of them and provide for them. And as the Lord knoweth who are his, so he knoweth who are not his too. As he knows his sheep, so will he know the goats also, and their place will be at his left hand. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Verses 28 and 29. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and none is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the promise made by Christ unto his sheep, namely the promise of eternal life and preservations in grace, till they come into the full fruition of it in glory. I give unto them eternal life, and none shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. Observe, too, the confirmation he gives of this from his own and his Father's power, which is employed, engaged, and concerned for them, 
and for their perseverance and preservation, notwithstanding all opposition to the contrary. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Learn, one, that eternal life is the portion of Christ's sheep. Two, that eternal life is the gift of Christ. Three, that eternal life is now given to Christ's sheep. They have it now in the purchase, in the promise, and in the first fruits. Four, that all Christ's sheep are put by God the Father into Christ's hand for security. My Father hath given them me. Five, the Father doth so entrust Christ with his sheep, and yet take care of them himself. They are in the Father's hand as well as in the Son's. And their being in the hands of both does assure them of the certainty of their perseverance. None shall pluck them out of my hand. None shall be able to pluck them out of my Father's hand, implying that there are many that would pluck them out of their hands, sin, Satan, the world, etc., but they shall be kept by the almighty power of God through faith unto salvation. For who can be too strong for omnipotent power? Verse 30. I and my Father are one. Burkett notes, that is, one in essence and nature, one in authority and power, and not barely one in will and affection, one in accord or consent. That this is the genuine signification of the word appears by a threefold argument. One, from the original words, it is not said, I and my father are one person in the masculine gender, but in the neuter, I and my father are one thing. Now, if that thing be not the divine being, they cannot be one. For since the father is confessed to be God, the son cannot be one thing with the father if he is not God too. Two, it appears from the context, our Savior in the preceding verses ascribe the preservation of his sheep to the power of his father. None can pluck them out of my father's hand, as he ascribes it also to his own power. None shall pluck them out of my hand, plainly intimating that his sheep were equally safe in his own hand as well as in his father's. For says he, I and my father are one, that is, one in power. And if they be one in power, they must be one in nature, unless we make an almighty creature, which is a contradiction. Three, it appears evidently by what follows in the next verse that the Jews understood our Savior in this sense. Why else did they take up stones to stone him? We stone thee, say they, for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. The Jews took our Savior's meaning aright and were satisfied that when he'd said, I and my father are one, he asserted himself to be God and deserved to die. And well, he had deserved it if he had not been God. The adversaries of our Savior's divinity, to exclude the force of these words, which make so much argument against them, interpret the words thus, I and my Father are one. That is, say they, we are one in will and affection, one in concord and consent. This is a truth, but not the great truth contained in these words. For the believers are one with God and one with another namely by a harmony of wills and desires. So far as they are regenerated, God's wills and theirs are unisons. They will and desire the same thing, and are of one heart and of one mind. But God and Christ are one in a much higher sense than Christ and believers are one, namely, one in essence and nature, one in authority and power, Christ being co-substantial with God. Learn hence that the Lord Jesus Christ is for nature co-essential, for dignity co-equal, and for duration, co-eternal with the Father. Two, that although Christ be in one essence with the Father, 
yet are they distinct persons, one from another. I and my Father, we are one. Three, learn hence that the Son being one in essence, one in power, one in consent and will with the Father, they are both equally concerned for the perseverance of the saints, for persevering them in grace, and for bringing them to glory. None shall pluck them out of my hand or my Father's hand, for I and my Father are one. If the power be the same, the essence must be the same. Verses 31 through 33. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Roquette notes, Observe here, one, how the Jews understood our Savior's affirming that he and the Father are one, that is, one in essence and nature, and himself a person equal with God. This they looked upon as a blasphemy in him, to aggregate to himself what is proper to God only. Observe, too, that the Jews looked upon it as a piece of justice in them to stone Christ for his apprehended blasphemy. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. According to the law of God, the blasphemer was to be stoned to death, but then he was first to be judicially tried and judged. But such was the furious and fiery zeal of these Jews that in a tumultuous manner they attempted to stone him to death. Lord, how far doth the fury of men in opposing truth outstrip the true zeal of thine faithful servants in defending the truth? Observe 3. With what meekness our Lord receives this hard indignity of stoning. For it is probable that some stones were cast at him, he saying, For which of these works do ye stone me? He clears his own conscience, he clears his own innocence, and expostulates with them for rewarding him evil for good. Many good works have I showed you from my Father. That is, by my Father's authority and commission, I have been sight to the blind, feet to the lame, a tongue to the dumb, and hearing to the deaf. Do any of these works deserve such usage as stoning at your hands? Learn hence that such was the perfect and spotless innocence of Christ in all his actions that he durst and did appeal to the consciences of his most inveterate adversaries. For which of those works do you stone me? Verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God? Burkett notes, Here our Savior by a twofold argument, vindicates himself from the imputation of blasphemy and asserting himself to be God. One, because the Old Testament gave to the magistrates and justices the title of gods, as Psalm 82.6, I have said ye are gods. Now, Christ argues strongly from the less to the greater thus, if judges and magistrates may be called gods because they are commissioned by him and derive their authority from him, how much more is that title due me, who was sanctified, separated, and ordained for a mediator, and appointed to the work of redemption before I came into the world, and consequently was God from all eternity? This place the Socians, those professed adversary of our Savior's Godhead, produced to prove that Christ was not God by nature, but only in respect to his sanctification and mission. It is a certain truth 
that he that was sanctified and sent was the Son of God, but he was not therefore the Son of God because sanctified and sent. His sanctification was not the ground of his sonship, but his sonship was the cause of his sanctification. Christ was not therefore God's Son because he was sanctified and sent, but he was therefore sanctified and sent because he was his Son. He was a son before he was sent, even from eternity. Otherwise, it must have been said that God sent him to be his son, not that God sent his son. This supposes him before he was sent to have been actually his son, as certainly as he was before the foundations of the world. Proverbs 8.23 I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. Verses 37 and 38 If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me not, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Burkett notes, Here we have a second argument by which our Savior proves that it was no blasphemy to call himself God, but that he was God in very deed, namely an argument taken from his works. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. And the argument runs thus, If, says Christ, I do those miraculous works which no power less than a divine power can effect, then you ought by these works to be led to believe and acknowledge that I am truly and really God. But the works which I do are the effect and product of an omnipotent power. Therefore you ought to believe that I am one in essence with the Father, there being a mutual inexistence of one person in the other, so that my Father is in me, and I am in him. And thus, I and the Father are one. Learn hence that Christ never acquired of his disciples and followers an implicit faith or a blind obedience. But as he submitted his doctrine to the trial of reason, so he submitted his miracles to the examination and judgment of sense. Therefore, he says, if I do not the works of my Father, that is, divine works, believe me not to be a divine person. Verses 39 through 42. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went away beyond Jordan into the place where John had first baptized, and there he bowed. And many resorted unto him, and said, John did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the violence and fury of these unbelieving Jews against the holy and innocent Jesus. They sought again to take him. Observe, too, the prudential care of Christ for his own preservation. His time being not yet come, he withdraws from Jerusalem, the nest of his enemies, and goes beyond Jordan. When Christ was persecuted in one city, he fled to another. He has sanctified a state of persecution to his ministers and members by his own being in it. Tis no disgrace for any of them to fly when their captain did it, and bids them do it, saying, When they persecute you in one city, flee to another. Observe, three. The success of Christ's ministry beyond Jordan. Many resorted to him and believed on him. This place about Jordan was the place where John had experienced a great part of his ministry, and now, many years after John's death, the fruits of his ministry appear, for many believed on him there. That is, about Jordan where John had preached and baptized. Learn hence that the labors of faithful ministers may seem to be lost and lie long like seed under the ground, and yet at last, by some new watering, may spring up and the fruit appear in abundance. Here John's ministry about Jordan 
had fresh fruit upon Christ's coming long after John was dead. Observe for the dignity of Christ above John. John did no miracle, but Christ did all. The wisdom of God so ordered it that though the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Eliza, wrought many miracles for the confirmation of their divine mission, yet John the Baptist, coming immediately before Christ as his messenger and forerunner, wrought none, for these three reasons, probably. One, that so the glory of Christ in working miracles, when he came upon the stage of his ministry, might be the more clear and evident. Two, that the evidence of Christ's being the Messiah might be more clear by the miracles which he wrought. Three, that the minds of the people might not be divided and distracted between John and Christ, and that there might be no pretense or competition between them. Therefore John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of Christ were true.